Welcome to Valley Church. Um, feels like it's been a while since I've been up here, so I'm happy to see all of your faces. Hope you're doing well. Hope you guys had a wonderful Thanksgiving, too. Um, today is actually the first Sunday of Advent. Um, if you're not familiar, Advent is just kind of the season um, in the historical church calendar that leads up to Christmas. It's just the church word for the Christmas season. Um, so the idea is that we want to take the four Sundays leading up to Christmas to intentionally anticipate and celebrate um, the birth of Jesus. But Advent is also about anticipating the day that Jesus will come back, too. Um, the word Advent comes from a Latin word meaning arrival or to come, someone coming. And so as the church in this season, we celebrate the first arrival of Jesus or the first Advent of Jesus, born as a baby in Bethlehem. But also we want to celebrate the future second coming or second arrival or second advent of Jesus when he returns to fully establish the kingdom of God. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to practice hopeful anticipation and celebration of the arrivals of Jesus. Um, so today will be about how the Bible in one particular passage in the Old Testament um, kind of establishes the necessity and the I don't know, the legacy of hope and longing for the arrival of Jesus. And then the next three weeks after that, leading up to Christmas, we'll spend some time teaching on and talking about the birth story of Jesus and all that leads up to it. So that's kind of what we're about here at Valley for the next few weeks. Um, I'm going to tell you my main point for today in case you, like a kid, needs to get up and like walk around or run around, or in case you fall asleep, it's rather cozy and Christmas season, and there's no shame in that, Kevin. And um, so my point today, he never needed my permission, so I don't even think he's in here, so it's all good. Oh, yeah, there he is. Okay, sorry. <laughs> now you're quiet. Okay. Okay, here's the, here's the point. Hope is our legacy and, and our future. Hope is our legacy and our future. So whether that be an excited, like, positive, hopeful anticipation for something, or like a desperate, hopeful longing for something to change. Both of those are what's kind of in my mind. Hope is our legacy as people of God, and it also is our future. So raise your hand if you are excited for Christmas. I'm mostly looking for any hand that's not up. But no. um, there is, for me, nothing like the anticipation and the longing and the hope that comes with the Christmas season. Can I get an amen, please? Um, I feel like one of the best indicators of this is the, like, the age-old question and debate of when is it okay to listen to Christmas music? So raise your hand if you are of the opinion that post-Halloween is fair game to listen to Christian, Christ, Christmas music, Christian music. You can listen to that whenever. So post-Halloween, hands up. Okay, um, raise your hand if you think that we just entered the Christmas music season and it's, it's now, post-Thanksgiving. More of us. Okay, so um, raise your hand if you're a year-rounder. You just like listen to it whenever you want. Nice, way to go. Bonus Jesus points for you. Um, what I love about that is that whatever you think, I think all of us can agree that the Christmas season is sacred and special. And that's probably why you think maybe we should not listen to it except for in the month of December because that makes sure that it's sacred and special and concentrated into the month of December. Or maybe you think the Christmas season is so special that it can't possibly be contained into one 
month, and so we have to start earlier. Um, but we can all agree that it's a very special and sacred season. Same thing goes for Christmas trees, Christmas lights, and decorations. I am in early November, post-Halloween through mid-January, like Christmas season and stuff. So um, December is too short. Christmas is too special to be contained into one month. That's my opinion. And there's so many different things to be excited about. It's not just the music. There's the lights and the trees, the gifts, the giving and the receiving, the time that we spend with family and friends, food, celebrations, and parties, and all that stuff. And it's just the anticipation of a day like produces a season of magic. I don't know if I'm overstating it, but that's how it feels. Uh, my kids and I have started a tradition, I think for the last maybe two years, of going on Christmas lights walks basically every night. So if it's not raining, we eat dinner, and then I bundle up the kids, and Kristen gets some peace and quiet in the house, and I take the kids on like as long of a walk as I can manage, just walking around our whole neighborhood, looking at Christmas lights, and they absolutely love it, and they know, they like truly know which houses have which lights, and they kind of like look forward to it. It's a super fun tradition, um, and I absolutely love it. Um, but it's not just about the fact that there's lights or that there's trees or that there's music. It's what it means, which is that Christmas is coming. Um, there is nothing like that anticipation that we experience, are experiencing right now. It's a beautiful thing. It's a season filled with hope, hope for fun and happiness and beauty and excitement and blessings and gifts and generosity and all that good stuff. Um, on the other side of the coin, the Christmas season is also filled with uh, a different kind of hope. And hope is maybe a strange way to think about it, but um, the hope and the longing um, for deliverance, uh, the hope for pain and sadness to be taken away from you. And so though Christmas can be a very exciting um, and happy season for some, it's also perhaps like one of the hardest seasons for others, whether you've lost a loved one or are sick or have experienced tragedy or loss or hardship, all the happiness that kind of is attempting to swirl around you in the Christmas season can also have the opposite effect where it makes you sad or feel alone or unseen or misunderstood. And it can make a person say, like, how long, Lord, are you going to let me experience this pain and this grief? And when are you going to fix this thing or make this thing right? And though hope might not be the word that comes to your mind, maybe not the thing you feel in those moments, when we allow and acknowledge our hearts to express these feelings to the Lord, it's an expression of hope, of trusting in God and um, anticipating that maybe someday he will change that thing or those things in our life that are causing us pain. It's a kind of longing or hope. So hope is our legacy and our future. Um, I want to look at a passage tonight that looks forward to the birth of Jesus, but it does so much more than that. So we're starting kind of with, before we talk about the birth story, I want to talk about how the Old Testament sets it up. Um, and so I just picked one larger section of scripture that I'm going to kind of pick a few verses out of. So the section is Isaiah chapters 7 through 12. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to Isaiah chapter 7. So I'm going to read through a handful of passages from this section. Um, sometimes these uh, six chapters are called the book of Emmanuel. Um, and this, this section, chapter 7 through 12, is one of the most densely quoted passages of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Matthew, in particular, quotes a handful of passages that we're about to read from this section. They will sound familiar to you. Um, obviously, I'm not going to teach or even read through every single verse in these six chapters. We're going to pick a handful of things to kind of help 
share the story, stopping at important parts along the way. So Isaiah 7, before we read, a quick 30-second little history of Israel's kingdom that's a little bit necessary before we dig in. So Israel's first king was Saul, and then David and Solomon. They're kind of the most famous ones. Um, Basically, all of those guys and every single king uh, for Israel who was called to lead God's people were broken and sinful, messed up people in huge ways. And eventually, Israel and its leaders get so sideways that their kingdom splits into two, one part in the north, the kingdom of Israel, and then one part in the south, the kingdom of Judah. So in our passage, that's kind of where we find ourselves, is the kingdom is split in two. We have a king of Judah in the south named Ahaz, and then a king in Israel named Pekah, and a couple other kings of other nations. So I want to help us not get lost by reading all these unfamiliar names, but actually just see what's happening in the story. So Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, Ahaz, king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, there's another king, and then Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel. So we've got king of Israel, Pekah, and then king Rezin of Aram are going to march up and try to destroy Ahaz, the king of Judah. When Ahaz was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Judah, um, king of Israel, sorry, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David, which is just another way of saying Ahaz and his people, his line, the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, another way of saying the people of Israel. There's like all these different names to describe different parts of God's people in that region, and it can be really confusing. So um, the house of David, Ahaz's people, they were told that Aram allied itself with the kingdom of Israel, or Ephraim, and so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, Shear Jashub, if you need name ideas, there's a good one, um, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool, you guys know where that is, on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, so God's telling uh, Isaiah to go tell Ahaz this thing. Say to him, verse four, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. It's the Lord trash-talking these kingdoms that are trying to come against Ahaz. These smoldering stubs of firewood. If you need a diss on someone, there's another great option. Um, don't, be afraid of them. don't be afraid of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabil king over it. We're going to invade, we're going to take over, and we're going to put our own king here. Yet, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. This is God, through Isaiah, telling Ahaz, it will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. These are just people who rule countries. They're, they're nobodies. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. They're just people. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign. 
Ask me for a sign that I'm going to protect you, that these two nations are plotting against you, that I'm going to take care of them. Ask me for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. He's maybe trying to like be obedient to not put the Lord to the test, but the Lord also just told him, ask me for a sign. And he's like, nah, I'm not going to. Verse 13, then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David, talking to Ahaz, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, if you won't ask for a sign, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, aka he's a young, young boy, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Okay, pause there. Um, so God is going to use the wicked, evil nation of Assyria um, to take care of these two nations that are attacking the kingdom of Judah, or attacking Ahaz. So take note, just first of all, that this passage about Emmanuel, which we read every single year, is probably very familiar to you. You have heard it. Just take note, it has a rather specific kind of contemporary context to what's happening here in the story of Israel. Ahaz is afraid. Israel and Aram are knocking on the door trying to take over. They're probably kind of like encamped around the city, not able to break in yet, but they're waiting. Um, and God says, don't be afraid. I won't let them take you out. And since you won't ask for a sign or like the proof of how I'm going to do this or when I'm going to do this, he said, I will give you a sign. So the sign of God's coming deliverance of his people will be the birth of this child called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Um, so Ahaz could, in this context, place his hope in the birth of this baby because it would mean that God was going to soon deliver them from their enemies. So the rest of chapter 7 and 8, this is where we skip some sections because it's long. The rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8 is more or less a kind of a description of how God is going to disrupt the plans of these two nations that are trying to attack the kingdom of Judah. In verse 10 of chapter 8, you can read it. He says, devise your strategy. Come on, let's go, but it will be thwarted. <laughs> Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. And then the rest of chapter 8 is a reminder for Judah to remain faithful and to trust God to take care of them. So then in chapter 9, we kind of, I think, jump forward a little bit in time uh, to after God actually let Assyria come in and take out the kingdom of Israel and capture them. And so we're going to read uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So Zebulun and Naphtali are in the north, and they were likely the first two kind of districts or areas to fall when Assyria invaded and captured the kingdom of Israel. So this is the humbling of Zebulun and Naphtali. They were taken and captured. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. If you looked at a map of this area at the time of the New Testament, Zebulun and Naphtali would essentially be the region of Galilee. So they're very similar locations. This is basically 
two ways of saying the same thing. Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee are of the, the same region. So he's saying in the past, that region was humbled, humiliated because they were taken captive. But in the future, he will honor Galilee among the nations by the way of the sea, the Sea of Galilee, beyond the Jordan. And this is how or why, starting in verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And the reason that they can celebrate like this is because of this. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So now God talks about delivering and restoring the people of Israel, the people in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Um, those people will see a light dawning, and it will cause them to rejoice, like someone would rejoice if their harvest was successful and they got a lot of crops, or someone rejoicing in, in a successful war, or the joy of being freed from slavery, or the joy and vindication you'd feel burning the clothes of the people that were trying to harm you. And then we get to the reason that they could rejoice, like what was causing them to be able to feel victorious. The reason that they would be victorious was a child. And I, th I think, though there's some uh, speculation and debate on this, that this child is probably the same as Emmanuel from chapter 7. Um, but now this Emmanuel isn't just the sign of Judah's deliverance, but of Israel's, the northern kingdom of Israel's restoration. So this child will forever reign on David's throne, ruling God's people as their king with justice and righteousness forever. Not only will he be the king, but he's called a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and the prince of peace. So this people of Israel, previously humbled, overtaken, captured, stuck in the results of their rejection of God, would see a light, a proverbial metaphorical light dawning over the horizon, which was a child that would be born who would reign as their king and bring justice and peace. So the rest of Isaiah chapters 9 and 10, it, it kind of backtracks a little bit. It's not very um, linear. Um, really, a lot of the prophets are not very kind of linear chronologically. Um, so in 9 and 10, we read about God's anger towards Israel for their initial rejection of him. And again, this is like the, the prophets for you. If you're going to read them, you're going to have a section about how God is kind of frustrated and disappointed with Israel for disobeying, and then a section about how he's going to use some other nation to kind of bring judgment on Israel, but then he'll wipe out those bad guys because they're super, super bad, which is actually what we read about in Isaiah 10. But then there'll be a section about how God's going to deliver them and restore them. Um, so it's just this kind of nonlinear back and forth between these sections of prophecy, which is what we have right here. 
The second half of chapter 10 is about how, though Assyria will kind of come in and wipe out and capture Israel, um, one of the images of that is of a forest being cleared or cut down. And we read about that um, at the end of chapter 10, um, of a forest being cut down. But um, when trees are cut down, they leave stumps. So though God will allow this to happen, uh, he promises that a remnant of Israel will be left um, after all is said and done. And so we read in chapter 11 now, verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, Jesse being David's dad or David's father. Um, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. So though the land of God's people will have been laid waste and the people captured, there will be a stump, a remnant, and out of that will come a little a, a shoot, a branch that comes out of it. Um, a small growing branch um, will arise out of the stump of Jesse. And so Isaiah is saying, there is a new David who is coming. Um, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him and so on. Um, and then we see in verse 10, it says, In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. So in that phrase, in that day, is like Old Testament code for like the future day of the Lord. And so this new David in that day will be a banner inviting people, and not just Israel or Judah, but it says nations. The nations will rally to him not just Judah to Emmanuel and not just Israel to this child who would be called the Wonderful Counselor, but all nations to this root of Jesse. And then the rest of chapter 11 describes God kind of going out and reaching into these nations and pulling his people back to himself. And then this, this book of Emmanuel, it ends in chapter 12 with a song of praise where God's people have, have seen all that God has promised and all that he has done for them. And then um, Isaiah says this in chapter 12, in that day, you will say this, I, praise, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day, you will say, Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. So, what does this story have to do with Christmas? Um, I think that what, we've, what we have kind of um, blitzed through and summarized of this book of Emmanuel, Isaiah 7 through 12, um, we've seen kind of th 
three levels or three different things. One, we've seen a story of God's people waiting for deliverance from God, hoping for God to come and save them. The first was the, the sign of Emmanuel, the child that would be born. And then the child that would be born for Israel to be restored, um, that would be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. Um, and then also waiting for the shoot that would grow out of the stump of Jesse. There was an immediate and a very important context to all these prophecies that we have read before and that we read around Christmas time. Um, but the story was immediately about God's people thousands of years ago hoping and waiting and anticipating for God to show up via the birth of a child. Um, it's also a story, um, prophetically speaking, for God's future people um, awaiting the birth of Jesus, which we know that because we read these scriptures at Christmas time. But um, let's just look quickly at Matthew chapter 1. Um, Verses 18 to 23. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew tells us, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in Isaiah 7 through 12, we're not told um, if or when or how this Emmanuel was born and whether Ahaz knew about that. Um, but what we do for sure have is Matthew, when he looked back on the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth, and he thought about this, he knew this was the Holy Spirit speaking through Isaiah, telling us about Jesus, who would come to prepare us for the idea that a child, a baby, could be the sign and the means of God's salvation. So it's a story with a context for Israel. It's a story with a context for future Israel waiting for Jesus. And then finally, it's a story that um, prophetically speaks of the future people of God awaiting the final kingdom of God, which is us. So these passages in Isaiah refer to the deliverance of Israel, but also they talk about a king who would reign forever, who would rally the nations to himself and rule with justice and righteousness and bring peace. And through the rest of the Bible, we know that this is Jesus coming to do this and um, that when he establishes his kingdom, he will destroy Satan and sin and death and evil and injustice. And so you and I, like the people of Judah, um, reading the words of Isaiah while under attack or hearing the message from Isaiah while under attack, or like the people of Israel under Roman occupation, um, we have the, the job and the legacy of hoping for the advent of Jesus, 
hoping for the arrival of this person, of this shoot from the stump of Jesse to come and establish his kingdom forever, this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, to sit on David's throne. And so hope, where we like eagerly wait for the arrival of Messiah, that kind of hope, it is our legacy and our future. Waiting in faith for the promises of God to come true, hoping in spite of our circumstances um, in God to deliver us. That's what God's people have done forever. It is our heritage, our lineage, it's in our DNA. So the story of Israel waiting for this child to be born and waiting for Jesus is also the story of us waiting for Jesus now. We also are exiles, not right now, not in our true home, trapped in bodies and hearts that are tainted by sin. And though we have the spirit of God and regenerated hearts, we still wage war against our flesh and we are waiting and we hope and we trust in these promises of God. And so um, the Advent season should be about um, identifying with the people of God. Uh, some waited for God to deliver them from Assyrian enemies, and others waited for Jesus to arrive um, in Bethlehem, and we wait to, uh, for Jesus to arrive to fully establish his kingdom. And so now in this season, we celebrate his birth, the birth of the child, Emmanuel, it happened. And then we also identify with God's people um, in our waiting for his um, final return. So hope is our legacy and our future. Just two things in closing. Um, if you find yourself, like I asked at the beginning, um, that you are like really, really excited for Christmas, that's just like bubbling up in you, um, I just want to say you are like right where you should be. You're like in the right place. If you find yourself filled with anticipation and joy and excitement and a good kind of tension, if, if the lights and the trees and the gifts and the music, it like brings you to this heightened state of anticipation and hope, good. I truly believe that that experience is a feeling like hardwired into what it means to be human and a thing that actually can draw us to the heart of God. The fact that you feel those things, that I feel those things is a testament to how good God is and also, more importantly, how good it will be when, when he does return. We like have this longing built into us and it bubbles out of us in this season of Christmas because we know what it means. And so if that's you, you should feel good about it. Like let it, let it be, feel those feels. And then just like take the next step in your thoughts and in your heart Try to add in and like reflect on this rich, deep truth that the hope and anticipation that we feel leading up to Christmas Day cannot even compare to the hope and anticipation and joy that we will experience when Jesus does return and ultimately delivers us from Satan and sin and death and establishes his kingdom. Some of you, though, um, aren't there in the like happy feels in the Christmas season. And you don't find yourself filled with joyful anticipation, but with sadness. Um, and maybe if you really think about it, um, a longing and a hope to be delivered or relieved of whatever the thing is that's caused you sorrow and pain. And it sounds strange, but if that's you, you also are in the right place. You are right in the middle of the stream, the current, the legacy of God's people experiencing serious hardship and learning to hope in the deliverance that God promises.
The very fact that Jesus came in the first place is proof that things are not as they should be. Our world has been ravaged by sin and sickness and death, as you know. It's swirling around us. We read about it and we are hurt by others' sin. We experience sickness, which is evidence of our broken, sinful world, but we also experience sin inside of ourselves when we do things and we act ways that we don't want to. We feel shame and embarrassment and when we're honest, can cry out to be delivered from these bodies and hearts that wage war against our desire to follow Jesus. Um, Jesus came because we are broken and our world is broken. And so if you find yourself hurting, sad and pain, if the Christmas anticipation is not fun, but like a, a heavy one, if you find yourself saying like, this world, this situation in my life, this is not good, it's not fair, it's not right, I wanna remind you that Jesus agrees with you actually and he hurts with you and he promises to be with you and eventually to make things right. And his first advent, what we celebrate at Christmas, it is the beginning of the end of this sin and suffering and sickness and death that we experience. He gave himself for us on the cross in sacrificing love to take the full weight, not just the sins that we do or that others do, but just the, the brokenness of our world so that he could offer us grace and forgiveness. And he invites us to wait and to hope for his second coming, um, the second advent where he will return and renew all things. So hope Whatever kind of hope you, f you feel right now, it is our legacy and our future also. And so let's be a people and a church that lean into that right now even more. Lean into that hope and that anticipation during the Advent season. So let's pray together. God, we thank you for what you have promised your people over and over again. Not that we won't experience pain and hardship, not that we won't need, experience the need to be delivered, but that you promise to come through, that you give us reason to hope in you, and you've given us reason to know that you will make good on your promises, and we've seen it time and again. And so I pray that we, um, as a church family, would be um, specially able to hold both kinds of these hopes and tension with each other. That we would allow one another to feel the joy of this season and what it means. And that we would also sit with and love one another um, as we sit in what this season means for some, which is that it's hard and it's sad and it's painful. Above all, would you help us to be a church that intentionally um, specifically um, hopes in you that we patiently and faithfully um, trust you while we wait for you. We love you. We thank you for these truths in scripture. Would you, um, even now after this, would you be working in us through them in our hearts? We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.